You are listening to a podcast from West Hill United Church located in Scarborough, Ontario, Canada. These podcasts are made possible by the generous support of our listeners, volunteers, and members of our community. To donate, go to our website, www.westhill.net, and click on the Canada Helps button, or go to www.westhill.net forward slash donate. Thank you, Scott. So, uh, we are just about exactly on time to give Michael an hour, maybe just a little short. Uh, but Michael Dowd is with us. Michael has been with us before. This is a slightly smaller group of people than you might have hoped for, but since we had everybody out yesterday uh, for the celebration of Cora's life, um, I expected it might be a little smaller than normal. So anyway, but we welcome you. We had such a great time with Michael last time he was here. Michael is a former pastor and a sustainable communities organizer. Um, when the climate walk took place across the United States, uh, he went with that walk to every single town uh, that those walking uh, came from or went into or stayed at in order to bring a message about sustainability and concern around the climate uh, to the people of that town. Town. Uh, and his presence buoyed uh, the people walking. I remember texting him uh, when they arrived at their at their goal and uh, were making their incredible demonstration about climate. Uh, and it was wonderful to know that I was part of that uh, because Michael was there uh, and I felt I was there with him. So he is going to bring you a, a presentation about climate, but I did tell him that I berate you about climate on a regular basis. And so much of what he might normally share with groups uh, within churches and congregations and, and larger groups uh, with those who are really not exposed to an ongoing um, visceral uh, remarks about climate, who don't uh, normally hear a climate moment every week, as we generally do here at West Hill, uh, who aren't familiar with what's happening in the oceans or, you know, say, oh, well, that, like, I don't even live near the ocean. What's the issue? Um, those kinds of things. Uh, his message then is one of sort of preparation and invitation, uh, whereas now he knows that you guys have already been uh, prepared dramatically. Uh, and so he, uh, I hope that he will bring to you some of the things that that happen at that interface between you who have been exposed to these challenges and those you know who do not want to hear you, uh, engage, be part of the conversation whatsoever. Uh, and so I welcome Michael. Uh, Connie Barlow is with him, and I am so inspired by Connie. I called her after... Um, after they clear-cut the ravine uh, behind my home on the longest night a couple of years ago, you'll remember uh, the drama of that, um, to ask her if we were to plant trees, what trees needed to be migrated? Connie is a tree migration specialist. She's a scientist and a, 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 a science book award winner uh, in the United States for her work uh, in science and evolution. Uh, and now she uses her hands in this most important work of migrating tree species uh, that, that would go 
extinct in the climates in which they uh, normally lived, uh, but now may be able to survive if they are moved north. So I appreciate Connie's work uh, and her presence here as well. And I know you can ask her work, uh, questions as well. There is a, I did ask her what what trees to plant and she told me that in Claremont which is just north of Pickering there is a tree migration project uh, taking place so if you're interested in that please do follow up with that so Michael over to you and thank you for being here the handheld mic is here somewhere but the hug first thank you we'll get the mic from yeah thank you great thank you My wife likes me to put on this little uh, thing so it doesn't pop. Good morning. Well, it's a delight to be back in Toronto. It's a delight to be back with one of my favorite ministers and absolutely one of my favorite musicians. Um, uh, we've loved Scott and, and uh, Greta for a long time, and I so appreciate the way that their ministry models meaningful ritual, meaningful language, not just spouting doctrines, not just voicing things because this is the way it's been done in the past, but ways that invite us to a deeper communion with each other. I love the way that you really focus on that community building. And also that anything you sing or anything you say actually is grounded in an evidential understanding of reality. And so I deeply appreciate that. And it's a joy. This is actually the last presentation uh, that Connie and I are delivering in a six-week tour of uh, Eastern Canada. We were in the Maritimes and delivered a number of presentations there. And then this afternoon we head back to Michigan. I want to give you a, a, a sense of both where I am now and where what Connie and I have been doing and also explain, because uh, Greta warned me, actually Scott did too, that this green clergy shirt might be off-putting uh, to certain people, so I want to explain all that. But what I really want to focus on this morning, precisely because climate is not a new issue, and the fact that you're grounded in an evidential understanding of what's going on, far more than the average church person, for sure, but certainly more than the average person in Canada and the United States, I want to start with that, really not focus on that, but my desire at the end of this sermon, talk, whatever we don't want to call this, is that you can, uh, my desire is that you have the internal space of, oh, now it makes sense. Like, oh, of course, of course, of course. So I first want to just give you a sense of where I'm coming from. Um, because I don't want this to be off-putting. So, those of you that haven't heard me speak before, this, I would say, is my creed or my sort of uh, faith statement in a nutshell. Reality is my God. Evidence is my scripture. The epic of evolution is my creation story. Ecology is my theology. Integrity is my spirituality. And by integrity, I mean the practices and exercises that help me live in right relationship to reality. So reality is my God. Evidence is my scripture. The epic of evolution or big history, the universe story is my creation story. Ecology is my theology. Integrity is my spirituality or my spiritual path. And fostering accountability to the, to the future is my mission. 
So just a little background, I grew up Roman Catholic, uh, had a born-again experience as a teenager. I struggled with drug and alcohol issues and went to an Assemblies of God church in, in, uh, in um, Berlin, Germany when I was in the United States military. I was, I was a military police officer until they busted me for dope and sent me to the infantry. Um, and so I, I basically was involved in very conservative Pentecostal Christianity. Very otherworldly, very supernatural, very Bible-oriented. I read the Bible straight through twice and then took another year and read it, you know, four or five chapters a day. And then in, uh, I hitchhiked around the United States, went to college at a Assemblies of God College. And the first day the teacher wa- uh, held up the textbook that we were going to use in biology class... And that textbook taught evolution, and I freaked. I had no way of understanding how they could be teaching evolution at an evangelical Pentecostal college. I picked up my books, walked out of class, slammed the door, and went to the registrar's office and withdrew from the course. I told my roommate, Satan obviously has a foothold in this school. Well, now I travel for the last 17 years. My wife and I have been living on the road. My wife is a long-time non-believer, atheist, humanist, free-thinker. Both of us are religious naturalists. So clearly, reality has a sense of humor. Life has a sense of humor. Because now I consider myself an evolutionary evangelist or an ecological theologian. And that's what this green clergy shirt is. I've delivered a couple of TED Talks in Grand Rapids, Michigan, which is a very conservative part of the world. And um, the first one was on evolutionary psychology and brain science, probably what I spoke about the last time I was here, on why we struggle, why we're tempted, why our kids and grandkids struggle with addiction. It's not because our great-great-great-great-great-great-grandmother ate an apple. (laughs) It's because we have mismatched instincts and we are living in a world of supernormal allurements. Things that we are normally instinctually allured to, but now in concentrations and forms that are almost irresistible. My second TEDx talk was titled, Reality Reconciles Science and Religion. And a week before the event, they actually had a typo on their website. It said, Reverend Michael Dowd, Reality, colon, Reconciles Science and Religion. So I told them they had the colon in the wrong place, but I said, I got to tell you, I like this Reverend Reality thing, right? And they said, well, we do too. And I called my publicist up, who had gotten me a lot of great press in the United States when my book, Thank God for Evolution, came out. And he said, Bill Nye, the science guy, Michael Dowd, Reverend Reality, we're running with this thing, right? So I went online and I put Celtic green clergy shirts, because I'm committed to the greening of religion. So I've got, I, I found these long sleeve and short sleeve Celtic green clergy shirts. So this is now my regalia. I become Reverend Reality. I just love it. So that's where this comes from. The last six years have been a radical change for me in terms of my worldview. Thomas Berry and uh, Brian Swim, who promote the whole universe story, Thomas Berry was one of the leading ecological and evolutionary thinkers of the 20th century. He called himself a geologian. Not a theologian, a geologian. And... Thomas Berry basically popularized, building on Terre de Chardin, that we are the universe after some 14 billion years of unbroken evolution now becoming conscious of itself. That humans are not the center of creation, we're not the center of the universe, we're not the be-all and end-all, we're not where it was all leading. 
And in fact, human-centeredness will cause our own extinction. Anthropocentrism, human-centeredness, what we think it's all about us, is the single most uh, uh, determining factor in unsustainable cultures. We know of over a hundred unsustainable cultures, that is, cultures that rose and then their, their own hubris, their own arrogance because, causes their own undoing. We know of over a hundred of those. And anthropocentrism, human-centeredness, is common to virtually all the ones that collapsed. See, that's just the last 3% of human history. Turns out, the first 97% of human history, we lived more or less as indigenous peoples. More or less in a mutually enhancing relationship with primary reality. And by primary reality, what I mean is everything we depend upon. That we don't exist without. Soil, forests, water, life, climate. Having a sacred, let put it this way, relating to the biosphere or the ecosphere as a thou to be honored and respected rather than an it to be exploited is the, is the fundamental difference between sustainable and unsustainable cultures. So, Thomas Berry had a deeply ecological worldview, and I had that from 1988, which was when I was introduced to his thinking, until about... Uh, 2000. And then in 2000, I read several books that put me on the techno-optimist bandwagon. My belief from 2000 to December of 2012 was my view of human history was pretty much from the caves to now to the stars. I had a Star Trek vision of the future. I was very much, technology helps us cooperate at larger and wider scale, and my sense was that that would be never-ending. Thomas Berry, my great mentor, lost faith in me in the last years of his life because of this techno-utopianism that I had adopted. I only found that out several years after he died. In December of 2012, Connie and I watched a TEDx talk by David Roberts called Climate Change is Simple. Changed my life. I was in tears. I woke up Connie. We were both in tears. And that afternoon, we bought a half a dozen books on climate. And basically, for about a year, climate change was the, was the most important issue. We, as Greta mentioned, we promoted and supported the Great March for Climate Action, where about 50 marchers marched from Los Angeles to Washington, D.C., 14, 15 miles a day. And we were speaking in the climate rallies and supporting them in that march. And then I began to study because I have a lot of time, we're graced with people who offer us second homes or vacation homes to stay in. So I'm privileged to have the time. So I've been spending 20 to 30 hours a week for the last six and a half years studying the rise and fall of civilizations, studying ecology as the fundamental scientific discipline, studying what makes the difference between sustainable cultures and unsustainable cultures. And I've come to a place, and I simply offer you for your consideration. I'm not going to try to convince you of anything. I'm not going to try to basically help show you how we can get on, back on track. I'm going to offer in the most sort of distilled form that I can over the next half hour or so, and then we'll open it up for whatever response that you might have. But I want to share just as, as, as briefly as I can this what... What has occurred over the last six and a half years that has allowed me, that's helped me come to a place of, oh, of course, of course, of course. 
being no less empowered and inspired to engage locally and engage wherever I can make a difference. So my activism has actually been enhanced by coming to a place of understanding the big picture where I'm no longer frustrated. So that when, for example, Donald Trump became president of the United States, I was not in the place where many, most of my progressive and liberal friends were, which were, oh no, this shouldn't be. I had already understood how empires and civilizations unravel, and it was like, oh, right on schedule. This is exactly what we'd expect at this time in the collapse of an empire. So the, I want to offer two distinctions. The first is the distinction between sustainable and unsustainable cultures. Actually, no, let me do that second. The first is the distinction between mythic speech and literal speech. Mythic speech, really, it, it, mythic and literal speech sort of are the two halves of our brain. One tends to be more rational, reasonable, scientific, empirical. It's what we can all agree on. Mythic speech tends to emphasize personification. That's one of the things I loved about, uh, Scott, your music there. With the personification. What would love do? We're personifying love. What would wisdom do? So when we act with these large-scale uh, human systems, human emotions, but also life systems, Gaia, for example was not the goddess of the earth. Gaia was not the spirit of the earth. Gaia was a personification, is the personification of earth. It doesn't matter whether you believe in Gaia or not, but you better believe we need to live in right relationship with Gaia or we perish, just like any other species. So mythic speech tends to emphasize and lift up personification. I'm not going to bother doing that here because I don't need to, because I can use secular language, but I just want to offer that... So let me come to the distinction between unsustainable, anti-future cultures, and sustainable or pro-future cultures. We know of thousands of more or less sustainable cultures. We've killed off most of them. There still exists some on the fringes. But sustainability is basically, it's this simple. Sustainability means accountable to the future. Unsustainable means unaccountable to the future. Everything else is a distraction or a footnote. I'm say it again. Sustainable means accountable to the future and unsustainable means unaccountable to the future. Cultures that lived in a way that honored primary reality as primary. See, it's vital to understand the nested nature of reality because if you don't get that, you can't understand this quite as easily. One of the things that science has given us is this sense of the, the nested nature of intelligence and the nested nature of creativity. Subatomic particles within atoms, within molecules, within cells, within organisms, within planets, within galaxies, every nested level has its own intelligence, its own creativity, not requiring anything from outside the system. It's simply nested intelligence, nested creativity. And we're in the middle somewhere. We are made up of smaller, creative, intelligent realities, like our microbiome that we can't exist without. And we're part of larger creative intelligent systems that we are utterly and totally dependent upon, such as trees and plankton and other animals and plants. 
And so human-centeredness is inherently self-destructive. It's inherently ecocidal because, imagine, some nested reality in the middle exploiting the other realities for its benefit. It's crazy. It's, It's unsustainable. That's why every single unsustainable culture has been human-centered because it, it forgets that. It doesn't either understand the nest of nature and starts taking the forest, the soil, the life, the other species for granted. It stops treating other creatures as teachers and starts cre- treating other creatures as tools. When we treat other living forms as merely resources for our benefit, and a place for our waste, that's the essence of unsustainability. We inherently, we necessarily degrade primary reality. That is, we, we, by just our living, the soil washes away, the forests are cut down, other species are, are killed in more abundance than they can reproduce. So, when I say ecology is my theology... What I mean is that in every sustainable, every sustainable culture was pro-future. That is, the fundamental role of religion or life ways, and I get this from Teddy Goldsmith. He was the editor and the publisher of The Ecologist magazine for 40 years. He wrote a ma- his magnum opus was called The Way, an Ecological Worldview. And he, he basically spent... 35 years researching all of the anthropological literature over the last 500 years of what makes a sustainable culture sustainable. And what he discovered was that relating to the biosphere as divine was it. That is, relating to the ecosphere as a vow to be respected as a greater thou than us. Humility. It's the stance that the land belongs, I mean, that we belong to the land. See, hubris, unsustainability, the land belongs to us. And so the fundamental role of life ways, it wasn't even called religion in most cases, the life ways was to ensure that the future is never compromised by the present. That is to ensure accountability to the future. And the only group that can do that is religion, because religion is the only group or institution or part of society that can speak with any moral authority, because it's the only part of society that typically uses morally laden language, like good and evil. And so in healthy, sustainable cultures, good was what promoted ecological integrity, social coherence, and personal wholeness, usually in that order. Ecological integrity is most important because if you don't got that, everything else you lose. Social coherence and personal wholeness. Evil is what diminishes or destroys ecological integrity, social coherence, and personal wholeness. This is not theological rocket science. What happened was, because climate became very stable about 10,000 years ago, and we've been in this relatively stable time of climate, which allowed for grain and, and, and farming and, and domestication of animals and stuff, we basically became so human-centered, it's what Daniel Quinn calls totalitarian agriculture. Well, we don't give a hoot about any other creature anymore. It's all about us. And where we can start having armies, 
We can start having a hierarchy in society, those who protect the grain store, and on and on. I'm not going to go through all the ramifications of dysfunctional, unsustainable civilizations. But we know, as I said before, of over a hundred unsustainable civilizations. And you don't have to take my word on this. The BBC just did a major special three months ago. The BBC Futures. If you just put deep civilization series, you'll see. Luke Kemp wrote an article called, Are We on the Road to Civilizational Collapse? And of course, he answered yes. And he's one of the world experts in these previous over a hundred civilizations. And we know why many of them, not all of them, but we know why many of them collapsed. And human-centeredness was always there, and ecology, or what we today would call ecology, was not at the heart of whatever religious systems or meaning-making systems there were. So in sustainable cultures, Teddy Goldsmith, this is his language, religion is the control mechanism. That is, it's that aspect of society that ensures, upon pain of death or ostracizing, that the future is not compromised by the present. It assures accountability to the future. It turns out that acting in the present moment with the seventh generation in mind isn't just a good idea. To do otherwise is evil. But in the West, religion has been asleep at the wheel for so long. Basically, once we got saddled with a mechanistic understanding of reality, that is where we took human technology, specifically clocks, and we started using clocks as our basic metaphor for primary reality. So nature was no longer a vow to be honored and respected, like Gaia, for example. God was no longer, the word God was no longer synonymous with reality as it is in every sustainable culture or whatever their mythic names for ecosphere. But now nature was an it that we deceived ourselves into thinking that we could exploit because our true home was when we died. We, we went to heaven, you know, or whatever. So religion, I used to say religion has been asleep at the wheel, but really that's not strong enough. Half of religion is gagged and tied in the trunk. And the other half of religion are in the back seat cheering on the psychopathic politicians that are driving us over the cliff. Religion can no longer, in not only the West, but most of the world, religion can no longer ensure accountability to the future because over the last 3,000 years, all the great religious, all the great religious traditions emerged in cultures that had already been unsustainable for 1,000 or 2,000 years. So there was no chance of truly impacting the economic, the political, and governmental structures of India or China or, or the Middle East or wherever. And so religion, instead of being the control mechanism of sustainable cultures, religion became the coping mechanism. Where religion basically helped people survive and thrive and have a good life and die peacefully and leave a good legacy in dysfunctional, unsustainable, anti-future cultures. It had been downgraded. And one of the things we know about this rise and fall of civilizations is there tends to be a mythic period where the, all the myths are, and the personifications are taken literally until a rational reflection on that, which is where you see what we call scholasticism, the, the, the sort of theological systems, and then a critique of that, and then finally a, a rationality critiquing itself, which we would today see as postmodernism, and then there's a collapse, and then people start taking the myths literally again. 
There's always a resurgence of religion in collapsing societies because people need meaning-making. They need to make sense of all this crap. Why is the world going to hell in a handbasket? Things were going great in the 1970s, 80s, 90s. It seemed like progressive values were going to eventually take over the world. Take over is the wrong metaphor. That is, we would eventually win things so that we would truly live in a just, healthy, sustainably life-giving future. But one of the painful... Could, could you turn my mic up just a little bit, please? One of the painful things that we have learned is that in expanding economies, expanding civilizations, in spanning, expanding civilizations, liberal values predominate. And then when it has overshot the carrying capacity, that is where we've used more resources and exuded more waste than the, the ecological systems can bear, and there's a degradation, there's a collapsing that usually takes many, many, many decades, sometimes a century or two, conservative values tend to predominate. So those of us, and it turns out that the most painful, difficult times to be alive are when you were born into what's called carrying capacity. Carrying capacity is the ecological term. Connie and I call it grace limits. That is, there's a, there's a limit to how much we can take and a limit to how much we can exude before the ecological systems, the living systems break down. And when we exceed those limits, there will be a population decline. It's unstoppable. And there will be a societal degeneration, degradation, collapsing, contracting. It's unstoppable. And the most painful time is when we're alive in times of carrying capacity surplus, where there's more than enough energy, more than enough resources. And in our lifetime, it shifts. And then in-groups start Coming closer, we start seeing these divisions in society. Groups that cooperated for 200 years are now at each other's throats. And the people for whom it's most painful are the people like where I was for 12 years, which is the people still on the bandwagon of perpetual progress. That, you know, there's some setbacks, sure. But we are, we are in a world where things are getting better and better, and they will continue to get better and better. The most, the, those who find it most difficult emotionally are those that are born into that time and then have to deal with the reality of contraction. And it is heartbreaking. It is excruciating. Especially when you've got kids and grandkids and you're looking at the fact that we just assumed that we had it better than our parents and they had it better than par their parents and we just assumed that our kids would have it better than us, meaning wealthier, healthier, longer life, greater ease and so forth. And now we're looking at a world where we're quite sure that our kids are going to have it more difficult than us, more challenging than us. And that is excruciatingly painful. So I want to offer just two uh, insights that I think will help make sense of our times, and then we can open it up for response, Q&A, whatever. I mentioned before that carrying capacity is the most important concept, theologically and ecologically. And Europe was already in saturation. Europe was achieving population pressure. That is, there were more Europeans living in a wasteful way, using more resources and exuding more waste, and the, the topsoil was being washed away, the trees were being denuded, and then an entire new hemisphere was discovered. Now, clearly, it was already fully inhabited. 
But because the Europeans were able to spread their germs that the indigenous peoples of North, Central, and South America had never been exposed to, that those germs wiped out 90% of them. So from the European perspective, it seemed to be an uninhabited continent. And even the indigenous peoples that were here, they weren't, from the European perspective, making full use of the land. That is, they were not <laughs> raping the living world for their benefit in the way that the Europeans knew how to do. But the indigenous peoples had the sanity to avoid, for the most part. And so what happened was there was more than enough timber, timber that Europe hadn't seen for over 1,000, 1,500 years. The trees were just gargantuan. And fish and animals of every kind, basically every kind of resource. One of the things that, that we now know ecologically is that in any species that is exposed to a new habitat, a new resource base, a new area where, the, where the, it's conducive for its thrival, population skyrockets, and if you can measure their hormones, life is good. And it is. The challenge becomes, millions of Europeans came to this continent, which reduced the population pressure in Europe temporarily, and unbelievable amounts of resources of every kind went over to Europe, which relieved the population pressure, and there was a sense of limitless possibilities that emerged in Canada and the United States especially. The sense of limitlessness, the sense that anything is possible if you just throw enough energy and human ingenuity at it, everything was seen as a problem that could be solved. And we shipped those, I say we, Americans especially, shipped those, those habits, those resources, those mindsets, and those institutions all over the world. So now people in India and China and Bangladesh and the European Union and Brazil, everywhere in the world, they expect to live like middle class Americans and Canadians. And that's what our governmental, uh, the media and, uh, is all selling them. That's what television is selling them. And so there's this expectation of limitlessness and the fundamental predicament. It's a predicament. It's not a problem that can be solved. It's a predicament that has to be adapted to and lived with is that we no longer live in a world of carrying capacity surplus. We are now living in a world of carrying capacity deficit. There's not enough energy. There's not enough resources. There's not enough land. There's not enough place for our waste. There's not enough atmosphere to take our carbon. So the fundamental predicament of humankind is that we actually live in a world of carrying capacity deficit, yet we have carrying capacity surplus institutions, mindsets, and expectations. And tremendous amounts of suffering are a result of just that ecological fact. So when we step back and look at, okay, Here's what we are. I mean, the fundamental, in my term, spiritual, and again, I use the word spiritual simply as what helps me live in right relationship to reality, personified or not. The fundamental spiritual stance I see is this. Accepting what's real, that's what I interpret faith in God, it's just accepting what's real. It's accepting what's so. Cherishing what is. Accepting what's so, saying, okay, here's what's real. Now, what's possible? Standing in that place of possibility, standing in that place of what can be done, given what's real, is, to my mind, the fundamental spiritual stance. 
And what it does is it helps us understand that there are certain things that are now literally inevitable. In my longer program, like my evening programs, I talk about a whole list. I've got about 12 things that are that science, that the worldwide scientific evidential community agrees are inevitable given the best case and, and medium case intergovernmental panel on climate change assessments. Worst case scenario is we go extinct. Best case and medium case scenario is, for example, I'll just name a few. There will be climate chaos. It doesn't matter if, every, if, you, if 7 billion people woke up and all did the right thing, we would still experience severe climate chaos in the coming decades and centuries. Sea level, for example, will continue to rise 25 to 40 feet, and that would be true if every human being died tonight. If some virus wiped out humanity tonight, the seas would continue to rise 25 to 40 feet over the next 250 years. There's not a scientist that deals with the oceans that would debate what I'm just now saying. Think of how many of our cities are way, way closer than 20 to 40 feet. I, I don't do the translation. How what would that be in terms of meters? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, six or seven meters. And so there will be shifts in where we can grow food and where we can, uh, where we can basically uh, live. You all are fortunate. The Great Lakes... In terms of fresh water and in terms of likely climate, the, you all here are in one of the absolute choice places in the world. What that will mean, among other things, is not just a few dozen or a few hundred, but ultimately thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people will be wanting to come to this part just to survive. So the migrations that we are now seeing in Venezuela, in, uh, in Syria, in many parts of the world are just the beginning. Mexico is expected to be, basically much of Mexico, is expected to be like the Sahara Desert in the next 250 years. The reason I say 250 years is that's one minute on the cosmic century timeline. If the whole history of the universe is 100 years, one minute after midnight is the next 250 years. So within the next minute on a cosmic century timeline, that's the next 250 years, we will see much of Mexico become like a desert, and that is already guaranteed. There's nothing we can do to stop that. What that means is millions of people will be migrating north and migrating south, and no border, no wall is going to keep them. America is in, more so America than Canada yet, you're a little bit behind us on this, thankfully, America is already 40 years into what's called catabolic collapse. Why civilizations, what they do is they overextend what they can afford to maintain. Think about your situation here. That's an example of catabolic collapse. Societies overextend what they can afford to maintain, and then they start having to let go of things because they can't maintain it, and they start eating on themselves. This is called catabolic collapse. The Rust Belt in the United States. This is why societies contract not like this, you know, we talk about the fall of the Roman Empire. It wasn't this. It was 320 years of partial recoveries and a stair step. That's the way civilizations contract. It's not overnight. 
And so we're already, the United States is into that. That's why Donald Trump will never be able to make America great again in the way that he's proposing or the way that he's, you know, deluding Americans, largely because we don't have the dense, concentrated energy. We are already 12 years into what's called peak oil. That is where the cheap, dense, concentrated, easy to access and, and affordable energy has been gotten. And we're now into the harder to get, dirtier and much riskier and much more climate intensive stuff. It won't be long, if humans survive this bottleneck, it won't be long before we're back to as we were the first 99% of human history. Human and animal muscle power and timber. Fossil fuels are a one-time gift, and once they're gone, they're gone. We're never going to be able to draw energy out of the air the way that some techno-optimists dream. Because here's the thing about technology, and this is very painful. Steven Pinker used to be one of my heroes. Steven Pinker, as I'm sure many of you know, is one of the prophets of progress. And in his, in, in, in his books, he talks about, accurately he talks about, how things are getting better and better for many, many human beings. And he can show them. He's got the charts. It's awesome. And he credits rightfully that technological growth and development and economic expansion have been the main things that have driven things getting better and better for many humans. What Steven Pinker and the other prophets of progress ignore is that every single system, again, think nesting dolls, we're in the middle. Every single system that we depend upon is not only in decline, it's in precipitous freefall. So, the, uh, you know, the soil, the forest, the water, the life, the other species, everything we depend upon is contracting because of economic growth and development and economic progress. So how do we stay present to this depressing stuff and nurture our families and relationships and community so that we can truly make a difference where we can make a difference and we don't freak out and pull our hair out on the things that are actually inevitable? Well, I suggest that y'all are already ahead of the game, which is the kind of community building that you clearly do. The kind of religious language that you clearly sing and voice is all about building a greater sense of community, building a greater sense of trust, supporting each other, so that as, your, as society continues to contract, as economic craziness continues to reign, as we see systems breaking down, not like this, but over months and years and decades, that you all have done the heart work, the grief work, the despair work, to truly be a blessing to your community, your neighbors, your friends, your family members who don't want to hear any of this stuff. Because here's the thing. Denial is a deeply rooted, healthy, normal process. And if the people in your life who don't get climate or they don't get sustainability and they're still in that, the thing that I would encourage you to do is just love them. Love them exactly as they are and exactly as they're not. And continue to be as honest as you can be about how you see the world, but do so from a place of love rather than there's something wrong with you that you don't get it. Because that's so often where we activists do. We normally, we're so passionate, we're so deeply committed to life and the furtherance of life, not just human life. I suspect most of you are what, what's called ecocentric, life-centered, not human-centered. And so what's, what breaks the hearts of those of us that truly do have a commitment to life and to evolution and to ecology and to the future 
and our neighbors and friends and family members are not, and some of them are entrenching in tighter in-groups, certainly this has happened in the United States, it's so easy to feel alienated, and yet in contracting times, let's say if we go through an economic contraction that's like the Great Depression, trust me, this is possible. This is likely in the next five years, could happen sooner than that. But if we go through something like that, having a good relationship with your family members, the people who you're blood related to and your closest friends and colleagues, it's going to be really good because it's not, as Greta's book is about, it's not about our actions, our, our, our life, how we live is more important than what we believe. And so we can love those who are on a very opposite perspective, politically, who may be in denial economically, because here's the thing, we see this from previous collapsed civilizations, those in denial the longest are also those that are hit hardest financially and emotionally when reality bites. Those are the ones that throw themselves outside windows because they can't accept the inevitability of contraction. They can't accept that things aren't just keeping getting better and better. And so we can have compassion for those folks rather than yin yang yang judgment. I suspect, I promise you, you will win more people over to an ecologically wise, earth-loving, nature-loving worldview to the degree that you can genuinely just celebrate people exactly as they are and exactly as they're not. Because here's the thing, and this is painful for me to say, but it is the truth. If every one of us was received some magic touch from the universe and we were effective in converting everybody that we were in contact with to a deeply ecological justice-oriented worldview, it would not change these large systems that are already beyond our control. We are already seeing climate tipping points beyond our control. This idea of human agency, that we can stop climate change if we just all do the right thing, is really a noble response, but it's also going to, it's guaranteed to cause you suffering at some point down the road. Guaranteed. So I'm going to stop here and then just take the rest of our time in any kind of response. Or it, it doesn't have to be questions. You can just tell me that you think I'm a heretic or whatever. But just any response that you would have, uh, either questions or comments or suggestions or feedback, I'd, I'd welcome hearing that. Scott. You're, you're magic. Yeah. Um, I love so many of your phrases, I, and it's been recorded or something, right? So, we can, but you called it caring capacity. Something. Do you remember when you said that? What? what I didn't catch that. Did I have this off the whole time? <laughs> okay, okay. No, I have most people saying no. Okay, so carrying, not caring, not heart caring. Carrying, like if I carry some wood or carry some... So carrying capacity is the fundamental ecological principle, which means that there is a limit. Basically, it means that limits are sacred. That limits are sacred, and there's a limit to how much we can take from the living world and a limit to how much we can exude to the living world before the systems break down. So we 
are in fact living in a time of carrying capacity deficit, and yet we have carrying capacity surplus mindsets and expectations, and we've shipped those to the whole world so that all the world expects to be able to live as if we had 10 planets worth of resources and if, as if we had 10 planets worth of ability to take our waste. By the way, I think this is true. I think this was not on the whole time. Okay. Once you said turn it up, it was Okay. Other question? Yes. I have concern about lack of political will, and we're always in a reactionary mode. I wonder what your comments are. Yeah, yeah. The lack of the whole question of the lack of political will. There is absolutely the lack of political will. And where you can make a difference, potentially, are in local kinds of things, and you should make as big a difference as you can. But one of the things that we know about previous collapsing civilizations, contracting societies, is that there is, uh, it's what John Michael Greer, one of our uh, uh, deepest colleagues in this movement, calls the senility of the elites. That basically those in power, those in leadership, those with the wealth, start self-centeredly making sure that they continue to have that in contraction. And so they will, they will basically um, ensure that the, that the laws are in their favor, not necessarily in the favor of the masses. So in virtually every other money-based society that's contracted and collapsed, we see the powerful and the elite grow smaller but very, very wealthy. The middle class washes out completely and the poor class grows exponentially until a tipping point is reached and the very, very wealthy end up as lamppost decorations. There's a revolution and they are killed. That happens over and over and over again. Yeah. The winning politicians appeal to um, That's true, and there's a bigger perspective, which is in healthy cultures, selfishness doesn't rule. Community rules, compassion rules, generosity rules. The problem is we are living in, many of us, most of us, in continental scale governance and continental scale empires and, and, and nations where, I, okay, I'm going to speak for the United States. The idea that the people of Massachusetts or California would ever agree on most of the most important stuff as the people in Alabama and Mississippi, it's just not going to happen. And so there's that tightening up, and any politician that can speak to my self-interest, screw those liberals or, you know, whatever the people, whatever the outgroup would be, and yeah, politicians play on that. And that's going to likely continue, which doesn't mean don't do everything you possibly can in your local governments. And, and, and anything that you can do locally is going to be good. It's going to be healthy. But when we try to influence things nationally and internationally, I'm not saying don't do it. Do it. But be prepared that you may be disappointed, and that's, just, that's, that's what happens in contracting societies. 
what I would say in an, in like if I were to, like if I had thirty seconds to say what it was most important, I would say this: as a person diagnosed with terminal cancer, the quicker you can get to accept that you are mortal and that you will die, it may be five days, five weeks, five months, five years, or longer. But you're going to die. And the sooner that you can accept your mortality and put your affairs in order. In other words, say, I'm sorry to the people that you've harmed or hurt or betrayed or in some way had a negative influence on. Say, I'm grateful to the people who've been a blessing in your life. These are things, they're sometimes called completion conversations because people at the end of their life, when they realize they've got two years to live, will often have communications with, the, with those people. And it's getting complete with life. And it nourishes your soul, to use religious language, in the deepest possible way. And I suggest that there's wisdom, as all the spiritual religious traditions have said, of having death, mortality, as your advisor. And now we can do so collectively. Because here's the thing. We're going to go extinct. Every species goes extinct. Now, for humans, it may happen in the next 10 years, and it may happen in the next 5 million years. But it's going to be likely in that time frame. And the only reason I even mention 10 years, because many people think 10 years, what the hell is he talking about? How could we possibly go extinct in 10 years? Once there's no longer ice in the Arctic, which could happen this September or sometime in the next few Septembers where it's an ice-free Arctic, all of that heat that was being reflected into outer space by hitting the ice gets absorbed into the ocean, which radically changes. I mean, it's like 80 times the amount of heat, and then that becomes a self-reinforcing feedback. That releases more methane, which causes more heat, which releases more methane, which causes... And the jet stream could go away, and basically these large-scale systems that allow crocodiles and alligators to live at the Arctic could happen in the next 10 years. Not that they'd make that journey that quick, but it, 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 the sooner that you can be at peace with your mortality personally and our mortality collectively, the more passionate and compassionate and generous will be your activism and your life because you're not freaked out fearful of the worst case scenario. Worst case scenario is we humans go extinct in the next 10 years. And that's possible. It may only be 10% possible or 15% possible, but I guarantee you it's possible. And all you got to do is Google abrupt climate change or blue ocean event and you'll realize he knows what he's talking about. It's possible. So that's what I suggest is be at peace with your mortality and our mortality and then engage as an activist. Engage in your local community from a place of no fear. No fear at all. And you've got a minister that models that brilliantly. I'm so grateful that you mentioned that because Brian Swim, who that quote uh, is from, has been a dear friend and colleague of ours now for several decades. 
And just to give the fuller context of that quote, he regularly reminds audiences that we are not separate from nature. We are not separate from the universe. That we are life. After billions of years of evolution, life has become conscious of itself and where we are the story remembering the story. So the two quotes from Brian Swim, one of them is just a fuller expression. He says, four billion years ago, the earth was molten rock and now it sings opera. And when the Bible or other mythic texts speak about God forming us from the dust of the ground and breathing into us the breath of life, what they're talking about is that we, are, we grow out of the dynamics of the planet itself. And another one of Brian Swim's quotes that I like is he says that he can take the entire history of the universe and sum it up in two sentences. You, you take a great cloud of hydrogen gas and you just leave it alone and it becomes rose bushes, giraffes, and human beings. So I agree wholeheartedly to not lessen our role, but I also agree Brian Swim for the last 12 years has been articulating the kind of perspective that we are now that it's not all about us. And if we think that man, conqueror of nature, is our stance, we will cause our own extinction. We have to have the humility to relate to the ecosphere as a greater thou than us. Martin Buber, the famous Jewish theologian, in his book I and Thou, talked about that if we don't relate to what I'm calling primary reality as primary, that is, if we don't relate to the ecosphere as divine, or as a greater thou, and we think it's just all about us, we will cause our own extinction. I-it relationships are not sustainable. Only I-thou relationships are sustainable. It's 12 o'clock. 12 o'clock. So we have to stop. Great. Um, but a couple of things. Uh, you're so lucky I didn't go down with a piece of paper because I'd have 17 things to raise um, that, I w that I would like to discuss more fully. Um, but one of the things that, that Scott and I have spoken about many times um, as he, uh, you know, wrenches my delusion away from <laughs> uh, the beliefs that liberals can fix things, um, liberal theologians, um, is that if we are going down, and the expectation is we are going down, that the work that we do in community, uh, the work about uh, going down well, that's our work. That we have the opportunity to engage people in meaning-making community and to create of their uh, lives, whatever their life is coming into community, to create the intention to be meaning-making beyond that community. Amen. Um, and so I, I, appreciate, I appreciate that. Um, I also know that the roots of our tradition uh, come out of some of that fear uh, that begins to grow when we aren't sure that we're going to survive. And so we create these stories that place us at the center of the universe and gods that will help us survive it. And so my, uh, my, my God is that I-thou connection. Yes, yes. Um, my uh, theology of judgment is the indigenous seventh generation. Yes. That's the God that will judge yes. us if there is a seventh generation. Uh, so I thank you for the, the depth of your presentation mm -hmm. because I, I haven't had uh, the exposure to some of the thought mm -hmm. and, the, and the writers. Though the first time I heard Brian Swim speak was 
32 years ago, um, which, you know, it's been 32 years uh, since my first, oh my God, what are we doing, uh, was felt. And and that we may not have another 32 years, but I mean, none of us will, age-wise, uh, maybe Donna. Um, um, the rest of us, and, and Babette, and maybe Deb, she's here too. Uh, you know, that we may not have that is worthy of a deep lament and then the meaning-making yes. that we are compelled to do. So thank yeah. you so much for that. If I can just offer one more just mini thing, which is that homo colossus is the term that William Catton, who wrote Overshoot, the most important book we've ever in our lives, homo colossus is the term that he has given to industrial humanity. The extinction of homo colossus is inevitable. The extinction of homo sapiens is possible. But there very well may be a remnant that we're a very adaptive species. So we may, as a species, we might survive. But one of the things we can know for sure is that any cultures that do survive, the only way they will be able to survive is to come back to the seventh generation, honorable relationship to the future. And so we can grieve the death of Homo Colossus because we're all a part of it, and yet put our faith, as I do, my faith is in life, with or without humans. My faith is in ecology and evolution, with or without humans. And my passion is to make as big a difference as I can from a place of love and generosity, the way that you all embody and ritualize here. So thank you. Michael, thank you so much. Michael, thank you for everything that you've done and, and the work that you and Connie uh, engage in. Generally, when we have a speaker here uh, who has inspired us, we offer a gift of a piece of one of our pews, uh, which is a candle holder. Uh, but you live in a van, um, so we're not going to do that to you. Uh, but I do want to give you one of these candlewick bracelets. Um, we spoke yesterday about it, or Saturday about it, um, in terms of the... That was yesterday, I mean Friday. Um, in terms of this being a symbol for those of us in the community that we receive on the longest night of the year, when it's important to us to remember that even in the depths of all of the loss, uh, the Pangaea community that we once were uh, is a community who that thrived because it chose to be fearless at times such as these. And so we hold these uh, candlewick bracelets in that darkest night, and we call ourselves to be light for the world. And so I offer you this. You are light in the world. Is my mic on? No? Yes? I'm hearing uh, a Shakespeare line, Our revels now are ended. Our revels now are ended. Our lives are not. And our commitment to one another extends forever. 
because we create between us beauty and magic and wonder. And so I send you out into the world uh, with that in your hearts, with that in your arms that reach out to hold, with that in your mind that continues to grasp what reality is and translate our lives uh, to its work. Go from this place in peace and in love. Amen. podcast from West Hill United Church located in Scarborough, Ontario, Canada. These podcasts are made possible by the generous support of our listeners, volunteers, and members of our community. To donate, go to our website, www.westhill.net, and click on the Canada Helps button, or go to www.westhill.net forward slash donate.